Hey folks, this is Boris Jabez, and you're listening to The Sequel Show. This week, uh, we focused on a topic that's likely important to a lot of you, which is how to get better at hiring technical talent. I spoke with David Correa, the Senior Analytics Manager at CoderPad, all about this. Their company builds a product that makes evaluating candidates easier, more collaborative, and more equitable. And we discuss things like why running technical interviews seems so difficult, how to interview for a data team, uh, even you know, what we should do as interviewers to, to help candidates. Uh, and of course, this is all about data. So we, we talked about what analytics teams should do to track and improve the hiring process, which I think is... Uh, something that gets lost in, in a lot of our conversations about how data teams can help the company. So this was a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, David. Nice to see you. Why don't, like, why don't you tell folks who are listening, like, you know, kind of the short story, who you are, what you do, where you're at. Yeah, that's okay. Cool. Well, I'm David, and I'm uh, the analytics manager at CoderPad. I, I think I live, breathe technical interviews and how to make them fun and modern and a pleasant general experience. And I live and breathe data all day, every day. I mean, I guess that's why we're talking, though, at the end of the day, isn't it? Sure. You've already made me think of like two immediate questions. So what is a technical interview? Like, what does that encompass? Yeah, that's a great question to lead with too. It's you imagine you're interviewing somebody and you want to get a good assessment of technical skills. Can this person and we we focus on developers, right? When I articulate technical interviewing today, like we we think about, you know, can this person solve the problems that they claim they can solve in whatever language matters to the business or the, that is meant for this role. And Traditionally, that question tends to get solved with, you know, like, here's how I would do it and it's a description and in the last 10 years, it's evolved to the whiteboard interview where someone will, you know, write up something in a marker with, you know, whiteboard marker and then just back and forth chatting on over a whiteboard. But neither of those experiences that I've described actually captures what day-to-day -day work looks like for a developer. And so when I say technical interviewing, I mean, can we assess or can anyone genuinely assess how a person's hard skills will actually look like in day-to-day -day work? And what you know, I live and breathe every day and the, the rest of us at CoderPad think about is, is how can we best support making that easy for an interviewer and fun for someone who's actually going through that interview. Wow, that's no small task of how to make an interview fun. I like that's a core goal though of CoderPad, that's nice. We like it and that's, I guess it's part of the culture. Like you have to want to make interviews not be scary and feel very much like what day-to-day -day life is like for a dev, right? So someone generally in software is probably what I should say because we also support languages that may, maybe aren't part of like, you know, there's Python, there's Haskell, but there's also SQL, right? And that could be a marketer. Hold on, be you hire, wait, are you telling me you put non-engineer titled people through CoderPad interviews, for example, at CoderPad? Like if you hire an analytics engineer, are you putting them through a CoderPad interview? 
We could. And it, it, granted, at CoderPad, we would. And we do see c customers of ours do the same thing. Arguably, I would encourage folks to consider not putting an analytics engineer, to use that example, through the whiteboard interview, because what are they doing on a day-to-day -day basis? They're writing SQL and they're writing you know, some, through some language or some using some tool to you know make data go from point A to point B in some meaningful way that supports the business or supports stakeholders. And the whiteboard interview, the casual conversation doesn't demonstrate that person A going through the interview can actually do that. So the intention is, you know, open up a pad, pick SQL, and then no biases. You can see right then and there, can this person do it? Yeah. Do you think the issue is that people don't, they don't use this approach or they do it, but they do it wrong? Like that most companies, when they try to interview people that have, as you pointed out, like hard skill requirements, let's call it software engineer, analytics engineer, something with engineer in the title for now, let's say, are they not doing hard skill tests or are they just, are they doing them poorly? Well, I don't like to think about a negative term. <laughs> we, they could be doing it better. How about that? And that's genuinely how I feel, right? Because you can assess someone by like, can you write good SQL or can you write good JavaScript by forcing someone to write up something on a whiteboard or a piece of paper. But that's not what the day to day is like. And in fact, that's not what that's just not what the workflow is like. Right. And so why not write code on a keyboard and talk about it together in a mutual environment where, you know, there's the code in front of me and can it solve the problem? Yes. So are they doing it wrong? Well, that depends on your perspective of what is correct and what is wrong. Mine is uh, if you're forcing a developer who normally works in an editor where they write code with a keyboard to demonstrate that ability, but with completely different tools in a, an already a stressful environment, could you be doing a better job to assess this person? That's on the interviewer side. And on the candidate side, that's not a recipe for making someone feel more comfortable. So I would argue keeping it where the developer is in an environment that's familiar yeah. empowers that person to show off how good they really are. Yeah, I think your point about interviews are kind of adversarial when that doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the company either, unless you're the kind of company that thrives on adversarial culture, which I'm sure there's a few companies for whom that, that is actually core, maybe like super kind of internally competitive companies. Yeah. But how it's kind of a tragedy of the commons, I would say, that interviewers and interviewees are adversarial because neither of them wants that. Everyone wants you to do their your best work. I'm trying to see you at your best, not at your worst, right? That's like really not my goal. I mean, again, maybe one interview you want to test out, like how do they do under terrible pressure? But it's, I'm kind of curious. It's like, what have you seen that causes an interview to be more fun, less d difficult? So, so I think you said one thing, which is like, if I get to use the tools I'm comfortable with, I'm going to be more comfortable. I think that's fair. I think I agree with that. Is there anything else? The, that's the big one for me. Well, I think about, it's funny because you use the word adversarial and that gets my gears turning. Like, did, would I be best friends with the person interviewing? Would I want to hang out with the person after the fact? And the if in, in practicality, right? Like every single interview is typically a hiring manager or some colleague that could be a colleague. Right. And, and then there's me or, you know, there's the candidate. And the goal is, you know, it's a two-way street. I'm, the candidate's also assessing, would I want to work with these people? Agreed. And I think the the point you make is is a good one, right? If an interview is not 
a comfortable environment. Like that, you're we're not setting up either the interviewer or the candidate to make a good call about whether or not this is genuinely a place where they could do their best work. It's just very much in the nature of an interview. It, it's a bit of a stressful situation. Exactly. And, so what have I seen? Well, with CoderPad, we, we don't see the interviews, but... We, we what you hear... mean, wait, CoderPad is not just getting all the best engineers who interview at other places and sending them over? That's not part of the system? Yikes. <laughs> kidding, kidding, well, kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. But I think <laughs> what we hear from customers that, that do use us is, and, and through the surveys that we get, is that candidates are happier, genuinely. Like they, they rate the experience as having been something that they liked and enjoyed. And interviewers are happy because one, and it's actually for a couple of reasons, but the one that comes to mind is interview prep is easier. And hmm. two, it, it, it feels like, and I can, I'd love to talk about that. And then two, it, it generally just makes it feel less scary when there's something common between the candidate, which is the editor, which is the candidate and the interviewer, which is, yeah. you know, the, the candidate if it's a live interview, because there's also the idea of a take-home project. But sure. if in, in the live sense, where there are two people actively talking back and forth and, and reviewing, it's not something that's strange. Like that's what day-to-day -day work is like. And so it becomes easier, again, through what I see in the grapevine and what we, we, we learn from how folks are, are just using the product. Folks tend to be more content when the interview is more comfortable. And that's the goal. We want to make it so it's easier to assess, can this candidate do the job? And then for the candidate, do I want to work with these people? Yeah. So we, you know, we do something very unusual here when it comes to the final stages of assessing fit, which is we actually do a half day hackathon project with the prospect, with the candidate, in which we put two full-time engineers to work with them. So we're putting in more human hours than they are, right? In a, in a way. And the goal is to be as collaborative as possible. It's really intended to give them a day in the life, right? It's the closest we have come up with to just to make you feel like you're in the office. And even then, when I ask candidates afterwards, right, they always say it was really cool. It was really like, it's, you know, it's unlike any other company, but they still are like kind of stressed. It's like it, because they're like, I'm being interviewed. And really the goal is to say, I'm trying to get across it. Like you already passed the technical bar. This is about just working together. And it is a two way street. We're trying to show you what we're like, because you can't hide in a four hour, you know, kind of project. You really can't hide who you are, you can try, but we can't hide. And usually the candidate can't hide. And that's the kind of the goal. But I'm, I'm very into this idea of like, how do you, what can I say? How do we prep the interview, the interviewee? To understand that like you know, we're on the same side here this is really we're we're trying to evaluate fit and and it's not about uh, you, you know if we don't fit it's not because you're not good it's at this point it's really like a, a vibe and, a, and like do we like enjoy working together and are we going to be like you said friends etc and it, yeah i want to put them at ease as much as possible but i don't know how to necessarily do that you can explain all these things but people are still stressed out it, it's a fact i mean it, it the, the goal is to minimize the stress. And sure. I'm willing to bet that, you know, as the four hour process that you described goes goes on, you know, the tail end of that, the candidate is probably feeling a whole heck of a lot better to be near the end of a hackathon project totally. and might actually be bonding at that point, right? And as stressful as it, like it's impossible to remove stress from the interview process, but I actually love what you described because again, it, in the beginning, yeah, the stress levels might be where they are and, but, but you go towards the end of the process. I'm willing to bet that there, you know, the group of folks is talking about 
grabbing lunch at the end of it, or is there's high fives throwing. Oh yeah. Being thrown oh, and they're like, starting to think about what this project could become someday in the future. And it's like, exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, you know, I, I actually love it. The time invested is amazing. The question that we try to answer is how do we minimize stress at, at scale? Right? right. And we have some thoughts, right? Like our product is built around what we hear from customers and you know, the, the features that are in CoderPad are they, they come from ideas like what you just shared. Like we hear, we, these are the conversations we love having. Like our product sure. team, this, this is what the day to day is like. And, you know, so like questions that can be shared across an organization that get used over and over creates this notion of, you know, we're mitigating how biased we might be with our own questions that we might ask, but because we're all sharing and kind of thinking about the same kinds of problems mm-hmm. or, you know, like it, it, in the example of an analytics engineer, again, like if we if, if all companies did the you know let's share half a day that would be amazing i'm not going to say that I, I would that would be fun at the end of right. the day right yeah the relationships have been built but in the example of the analytics engineer having a common set of databases that engineer has access to helps to mitigate bias against the different interviews that you'll give to different candidates because right. it's the same question and the answer has become almost like yeah did this person it's like almost like did this right person write sql or python or r or whatever when they fetched this data and made it and, and queried it and produced some insight you know are they similar did they arrive at the question in the same way that the other candidates did it, it becomes less about did they answer it the way i would want and more about how did other people compare and how did people think and completely so agree I, I think i've tried to always come up with over the years of interviewing right there's you definitely want to repeat questions because then you find benchmarks you're able to start to calibrate right. and i mean i don't my co-founders have been using a single, like a screening interview question for like over a decade. And so the, the calibration they have on it is so high, right? Because, you know, it's, it's across three companies, they've been using the same question. It's like, they just know this is a P90 answer. You know, this is a, but you also want it to be, to your point, I find you don't want it to be too closely tied to your company's domain knowledge because then it's, it's like they'll ne- I've rarely found a candidate who can match us because like we've been spending all day every day for years thinking about it and mm. they're from the outside so I think this is where you get those interview questions that are much more abstract you know like like let's design a coffee machine or you know so, so th- things like that where we're on a shared ground and you can't you, you know it's not like I have knowledge that you don't that, that puts you at a disadvantage that's a it's a fair point like that database that the analytics engineer should use should not be like full of coder pad kind of isms. It should be probably sure. something somewhat generally understandable. So yeah, I mean, so just again, full transparency, we try to make that easy again for folks. The suggestions that we offer are sample questions and sample databases. Like there's the, like in the world of SQL land, there's the classic like employees database right. or in the world of machine learning land, there's like the Iris data set. Right. So like there's, there are the common things that if you're in the if you're in the field, you've probably seen something related to this. We, that's we nice. Do, now you can benchmark industry wide in some way. That's kind of a neat aspect. As well too. That's kind of that's kind of my aspiration with how we could use our data here. Like I would love to be able to at a macro level start talking about like, oh, here's what hiring is looking like over the past five years and how how and the trends that we're seeing. And that's coming. So on the subject of, you know, the rich data set that we have at CoderPad, yeah. like it, it it does get to become a very cool thing to talk about. Yeah, you must have some fun data points. 
like I'm going to make one up and I'm, you're going to tell me, I hope you have this or that you have it at your fingertips, which is like, what percentage of interviews do not end, uh, like are end abruptly? Ooh, that is a good question. I don't have that at my fingertips. When and when you say end abruptly, as in like they weren't, they, they, it's like shorter than expected. Yeah, like I so, feel like uh, the did not complete would be a really no. good hard metric, right? Of like something went very wrong. Like the did not complete should be near zero, right? You hope. You'd hope. You'd hope. Yeah, I hope that's as close to zero as possible. But I'm certain that exists. It. I mean. I hope that if folks are, and this is again just my heartstrings talking. Like if someone, if, if you have an interviewer and a candidate, and they're engaging in a conversation, it would be terrible if like it would be you right. ended it early one or one or the other. But uh, you know what? Though I haven't looked at it, I'm confident that probably happened. I mean, there are horror stories with interviews. Yeah, all the, the law of large numbers, right? You will find, like you said, you're working at scale here, so like you will see all variants have occurred. Well, okay, then what's what are some data points? people should be gathering on their, like, as a, as a, someone who does interviews, right, rather than for Codepad for a second, what, what are analytics everyone should have in terms of their hiring process? You know, the thing that comes to mind for me, so I, how effective is a question that we're asking at assessing if a candidate is up to snuff or not? Right. I, I think to the famous story that Google, this has actually been on my mind recently. Google used to ask riddles and brain teasers. And yeah, so did Microsoft where I started my career. There you go. And famously, right, there was a lot of PR around, we will no longer do this right. because we learned it doesn't help assess how skilled a candidate is at their job. And I think, again, if we could support at scale, giving folks that insight, uh, like here's a bunch of questions that you've been asking and here's how candidates are rating them like off the top of my head, like that's a data point that could be empowering across the board. Now, uh, I mean, you talk about ML in some ways, if a company is large enough, or maybe you can do cross company knowledge, but maybe not, you'd want to know if a question that people succeed at is actually a poor indicator of future performance or vice versa, right? Like a, com a question they did poorly on was a poor indicator of their future good performance. Like, cause that's the ultimate metric, right? Is like, are they a successful member of our team? Mm -hmm. And was this question, you know, informative of that? So some longitudinal data that might be very interesting. I mean, yeah, you're hitting it on the nail, right? The idea is w there is some knowledge, right? If you're using the product, wh wh what did you ask candidate X and then you know, did, was candidate X ultimately successful? Yeah. And again, because we have that at scale, that's going to become something that we will be excited to explore in, in the future. But yeah, that's the sort of stuff that we hear from customers. In fact, like it would be great to know this. Got it. So people have like, they, they ask interview questions and they're genuinely like, I don't know if this is a good interview question, basically. It's a common theme, actually. And it's, I mean, I'm saying this a lot, but it, a lot of what drives what happens at CoderPad comes from people that are interviewing with CoderPad saying, I would love to learn more about what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. Or it would help me out if I had this library to play with in you know, like this software tool to play with. And you know, a lot of that is what drives what we do next. So, you know, on the subject of being proactive with our data, certainly that's a guiding light. But at the end of the day, if it means nothing to customers, we, you know, it'll become something operational internally we'll talk about. 
right? Like I'm over here talking about how I think it would be great to be able to rate how effective a question is or, you know, as an example. But yeah. if customers don't want it, then what's the point? Now, I'm giving you an example of something that I know people like, but I mean, yeah. I think you're setting yourself a very high bar. Like that's a question everyone wants to know, but that's a hard question. Like you're starting with something difficult. I, I feel like as a, I like the, the kind of ambition you have as, as like r- running the data team there to answer questions of that magnitude. There's got to be like, what's the run of the mill responsibilities of the data organization at Quarterpad? Like what, you know, what are KPIs that you are kind of tracking? Sure. I mean, are people interviewing and are they, are they and how are they rating the experience? So like, the basics, you could imagine yeah. the basics, like how often is the product being used and by whom? Um, and are people happy? Those are super key metrics that would, you know, anyone should be able to answer at CoderPad. And the idea, like, that's a regular conversation, whether it's at all hands or operational meetings. Right. Uh, so a much more run-of-the-mill question. Granted, we like the hard questions too. You know, I like to think we're an aspirational and optimistic company. If we can do things that bring a little bit of delight to both the interviewer and the candidate and make interviews be a little bit less scary, then we're doing an amazing job. That's well, I think, I think what you're... Yeah, but I think it's not just. I I, I agree with you, but in a, I, I think you're even there. You're I think you're underselling it. It's not just the optimism. I think as a data professional, right, like people who come to work for you in the role of analytics engineer, data engineer, analyst, you name it, right? What's the motivation, right? What's the motivation to go in house versus a consultancy versus anything? And I think the idea that there are questions that the data team will eventually be able to answer that are fundamentally unanswered in the industry is super exciting, right? And I would be motivated to, to, to spend time on the team, even if, of course, day-to-day you have all, all sorts of other KPIs to kind of compute, right? But to me, I am always heartened and disheartened. It's like a weird combo that the world is nowhere near as sophisticated as we think. So like, you know, we've been hiring and interviewing and building the software industry for 40 years and speaking to you it's like yeah we don't really even know if that question is a good question it's a fact i mean that's kind of the fun and and what makes the job difficult but that's the nature of of any scientific pursuit you don't know if it's going to come out giving you something awesome that it can be usable right The, the classic term like this is an actionable insight or if it's a dud but that's that is half the job understanding you know what are the questions we can tackle by the way, that's a really interesting meta metric for a data organization is like, if every piece of insight you derive is actionable, you're probably not trying enough, right? You should be generating duds. Like, it's like if every time, you know, you swing, it's always a hit. It's like, then you're probably not taking enough swings, right? Is the idea? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that until you just said it, but it's like, yeah, sometimes it's exploration, right? It's, it's, it's a bit of a scientific process and we might uncover interesting truths, we might not. That's That's been a common theme across different jobs I've been in. Because I, 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 I've been fortunate to, enough to be on, sit on data teams at different you know classic Silicon Valley startups. And the common theme that you make me think about is, you know, don't aim for an A plus, you know, do well at your job, but like make mistakes. and. Right. Do research, even if it, you know, carve out time to to see if you can learn something, even if it doesn't lead to anything actionable. Learn something, and it, and the worst thing that's going to happen is you've gained some knowledge that we can't use today. Yeah, no, it's the 
there are a lot of ways you can stop to, you know, internalize like what's that? There's that famous Edison line, right? It's like I didn't invent the like 99 tries to get the light bulb, but it's like really, it's like though those failures are on the path towards the success. Yeah. And I think the hard part as leaders, right? Whether it's team leaders, company leaders, is how to foster that you know meandering process that may or may not be a constant set of hits is difficult. It's difficult. It's not an easy thing to do, but but I think it's the correct kind of mindset. Yeah. Do you think the, are the, is the scientific process, I think we've talked about this before on some of the conversations I've had, but like, do you tend to follow, like, is it important for people on your team to understand, let's call it like hypothesis test, you know, kind of, should everyone be versed in some basics of experiment, like kind of the theory of an experiment? I mean, to some extent, I would hope so. As a person working in industry and not academia, I am motivated to practice some level of rigor but also I'm motivated to get, to do the minimum amount of work as possible to get to an actionable insight that's helpful. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you know, do what's, do what's appropriate, but don't spend three hours trying to answer how many users do we have. That would be an enormous waste of time. Like we should know that without, with very little effort mm-hmm. um, to use a kind of a convoluted example. Uh, but there's kind of a balance, I, I would think. Like one should be versed in, and, and kind of to some extent, if you know, data people, scientists, analysts, engineers, thinking about how can I be rigorous and follow some, you know, scientific method to use what you're alluding to get to an answer. But at the same time, how can I quickly, you know, get to an answer that is actionable and meaningful and is enough to empower the person that I'm trying to answer this question for? So if the purpose is pure research, right? Like maybe I'm an ML engineer. Sure. Um, then, gosh, you know, your job is to be rigorous and scientific and lean more academic than industrious, to use those two terms. Ooh. But at the same time, if you're a data analyst or a BI analyst, your your job is not to practice every every strict amount of rigor and statistical approach that you, or statistical rigor that, you know, could maybe get you to the exact same result as if you were to just look at some trends over time. I, I lean that, the, you know, the question and the context in, for the business is what should motivate that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sure everyone on your team, based on how you're talking about it, is probably motivated by the core mission of the company, right? To make interviews better. And so like, hopefully you're keeping that in mind as you answer questions or, or search for insights, right? And, like, well, and you should have that in mind. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. And then the thing that I encourage folks on my team and what I hear from everyone else is have context for the business, understand why the question was asked. And I hope people, you know, data teams all over do this. Like if if you're just doing research for the sake of research, it, it's probably a more academic pursuit than it is to help the business move forward. Right. And if that's the case, what are you doing working, you know, on a data team, if not to help the business be amazing? I think that the reason I bring it up is this, it's almost in the name of the role, right? Like engineering tends to be the, the you're building to, you're dealing with constraints, there's trade-offs, but you're building systems. It's not an exploration, right? Like engineering a bridge to use that kind of like analog. It's strictly a, you know, kind of what materials do we need? What shape does it need to be? How do we do it? Like, how do we put it in? Whereas in data science, in the name, right? In the name, it's, it's it says right there, it's like a hypothesis exploration. If we were to do this to the app, like, would something change? And it's like, the answer might be no. Yeah. And so it's different in kind. And that's why I think it's different 
in how you would manage it because engineers you can really focus on outcomes but like did even analytics engineer you can almost say like did the model get built like did the data flow like th- th- these are like almost guaranteed to be achievable things but data science or analysis may as you said might hopefully actionable insights but might not and you have to manage that <laughs> yeah that's that is kind of the challenge to the role isn't it but to our earlier point you know, if it ends up being a dud, that's okay. It's just a matter of fostering that it's okay in the culture. Granted, again, context is everything. If there is someone who's made, you know, if, if I could imagine a case where a PM or any business stakeholder has made a gamble and is, you know, spent company money on a campaign or something to change the app in some maybe non-trivial way or a website, you know, like the shopping cart, if you're an e-com shop, like that's a sacred thing. Like if you're changing that, right. which you know, all companies should be playing with it. But if you're making a real change, then that merits a little bit of effort to have some understanding. So again, context is everything. You're you're absolutely right. It's like, I mean, this, I mean, this raises the question of like, how how does one gain the right amount of context? Because someone might say, hey, I want to know X, but you don't realize like, oh yeah, there's some very urgent, very important thing tied to this that if we touch it, it's going to be wrong versus I was just curious. So, or or like you, you might be getting a question that is sufficiently removed from the shopping cart that you might not even realize it's tied to like about, we're about to make a product decision about the shopping cart that's going to potentially shake the whole company. And you're an analyst just going like, I just answered the question. I, I, I didn't think about the repercussions. How should one, especially in kind of the way companies are orchestrated, like organized and how, and I'm even curious, like in your case, of, you know, what teams, how people report to you and how they report to the rest of the company. How, what's, how do you ask the five whys? How, how do you get to the, the kind of the context? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I do. I don't know that I know the secret sauce, Um, (laughs) but at at, at 10,000 feet, the answer is have some kind of alignment with the person that's forming the question. What, why are they, like, understand what's the nature of the question? What's the real goal here? So to, you know, to be less abstract, a PM wants to change something on the website. Like, we'll go back to the shopping cart example, right? Like, I want to change the button from blue to orange whatever, right? Convoluted, but again, like it's- We all live in Google shadow that the color changes change everything. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, like arbitrary example, but- Sure. It's going to be motivated by some PM saying, I think this will impact the business in some positive way and I'm going to gamble company resources and time. Educated gamble, right? But it is what that is what it is at the end of the day. This might pay off into nothing. Um, And the question that's often asked is, you know, did this help? Did this do harm? Did this not do any harm? And that's kind of it. So having the context for the PM's concern, the PM's goals, and the impact to the business provides context to the person on the data team that's trying to help you know, with building that you know, insight of it did no harm, you, know, you get to make the call. Or it, it absolutely tanked you know, your conversion rate. So you know, sorry, but it's got to be blue instead of orange to, again, stick with my arbitrary, silly example. But how do you go about doing that? So every team's a little bit different. And I won't say that I've got a secret sauce for folks, but the truth is it comes down to communicating and listening at the end of the day and being good in some way at that. Active listening in terms of I have attended some meetings or I've had enough one-on-ones with the stakeholder that made this, you know, 
change and is claiming that this A-B test is going to lead to something positive. Like I know what that, what that concern is. I know what that goal is because I've been in these conversations and I've, I've heard it. I could say it back to you if I wanted. Like This is what that person's goal is. But that's hard to do. Why? Because we're humans. Like, yeah. Humans specify things very poorly. Yeah, like me thinking about the way that I'm going to articulate my next sentence to you, it may sound different coming out of my mouth than it did in my head. That that's happening 24/7 if I'm talking. And that's not unique to me. The the thing that, you know, we just have to do our best with is come up with some model and different companies do it in different ways to try to control for the fact that we're human and we make mistakes when we listen and when we talk. So what I mean by the model, data teams can be embedded where you've got sure. someone that's you know dedicated to the, you know a data resource, but they live in engineering land or in algorithms land or in marketing, marketing land. land. And Right. Or you have that classic hub and spoke where there's a centralized data team and there are people that go out and work with someone on a project, but come back and, and there's, you know, they're a resource that's not guaranteed to that pod or whatever that right. might be. That team. Right. Uh, those are the two that come off the top of my head. And no, that, I was going to say the, the thing that you said is almost cross cuts. That is how do you get given your point that like English or, or whatever language people speak is imperfect and people's ability to express what they want is imperfect mm-hmm. at more deeper philosophical level even, right? Is it on the, is, the, is there an onus on the data team to help kind of Socratically extract what you want? Like who's responsible for explaining themselves better? Is it the PM who wants it, the marketer who wants it? Or is, the, is it the person on your team and you go like, no, you have to figure out how to get them to say the right words. Like it, 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 you have to extract that from them. Yeah, this is where alignment becomes so important. Right. Because I do think it, it, it falls on both parties, but it, it, I think there is an onus on, especially if it's a, an analyst working with business stakeholders. Yeah. To understand the context of the question, right? I, I could hear something like, I want to know what user growth looked like after we changed the button color or what the conversion rate was after we changed the button color. But the real question underlying might be, I, I want to know if I'm hurting company metrics somehow. I want to know if this is improving con- company metrics somehow. And conversion rate might have been what was articulated, but maybe there's also a concern that other people will have around units per transaction. Yeah, the second order effects, right? Exactly. And so I think that onus does fall on everybody, but naturally, like the, the people that are accounted, like different stakeholders will care about different things. There will be the people that care about, again, I'm sticking with e-com and I work at a SaaS company. It's, <laughs> um, it's good. We're, it's safe for both of us because neither of us works in e-com, so we can kind of there we go. paint a picture. I'm going to harp on e-com for a second. But th- there is some onus on the person on the data team, whether that's the analyst, the engineer, whatever, to, to ask probing questions to ensure that there is context for the as much context as there can be for what the underlying concerns really are. And again, in my arbitrary example, like it might not just be one metric that the business is concerned about. It might've just been what the PM asked. And so, yeah. I think I agree with you. By the way, I think I agree with you. I think if you have many owners, you have no owner, right? So yes, alignment is a team sport, but I think we, as data practitioners, let's call it broadly, or data teams or data leaders, I think we understand the need for precise language, precise definitions better than the stakeholders. It's just a sad reality. And so I think where I would land based on what you said is we should paraphrase what the stakeholders are asking for in more precise language so that people go like, yes, that is what I meant. Yeah. And that is a correct interpretation and you've tightened it up. And and usually in that adding the precision, it's work. 
but I think asking the, the like marketer to be like, no, but what do you mean? Like last, you know, you wanted, how did this affect last seven days? Like they might not even realize that like, well, the shopping cart improved, but retention worsened. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that might not even cross their mind. Right. And so I think that to me is the unique advantage purview and responsibility of the data org. We have much broader view, right? Like, both because we understand, let's say, the statistics side of it, but also this, the business. You have PM stakeholders, you have marketer stakeholders. Like, they're not each other's stakeholders in some ways. It's really, it right. always comes back to the data. And, so, and, and oftentimes, as a result of that, and I love that you said it that way, because they're, different people will own different metrics, but that doesn't mean that's the only thing that the data team should be accountable for reporting and understanding it. And so, again, to, the, to your point, like, if shopping cart, you know, conversion went down but or went up but retention tanked if you have a high powered analyst or you know someone that's involved in the business and has some understanding of what the business's concerns are that should almost be like a thing that just automatically almost pops up in conversation like oh okay yeah well we should look at all these other metrics too just to be um, yeah philosophically like i do believe that's a good thing that that level of being embedded and that knowledge that a data person should have about the business like that that's the mark of success of a, a good data professional this is interesting. I mean, you and I were talking about this a bit earlier, but like that involves, there's a human element to that, right? So if you're embedded, but you're, so like you're in the team, but kind of not in the team because like your manager's not the same manager, right? Or whatever. We live in a hard enough world in terms of how to bond as people in this, these last two years. But what are, let's call it tips and tricks that you've seen work for embedded analysts to, to kind of get tighter with their colleagues? Like, because, right, they don't technically share a manager. Like, you're like, they know you're embedded. Like, they know you're the, the kind of, you're that person from the other the team who's just here to help us. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It varies by company. The reason I say that is because we were also talking earlier about how Coderpad is a distributed company. Right. Right. And so. From uh, the beginning. From the beginning. And so they're the, the casual shoulder tap, hey, let's go get pizza. That's not a thing at, if you're geographically distributed. Like, we've got folks in France, we've got folks in, I mean, quite literally all over the United States. And that that takes a different level of effort than if we're in the office and, you know, I, I tap someone on the shoulder. Yeah. So in, in the, we'll call it the traditional situation where people are in the office and, you know, there's FaceTime. FaceTime is a big deal. So I often say the tips and tricks is relationship management is part of the job. So true. It's, so true. You're a pretty, you're going to have a very hard time as a data person without trust and without a relationship where a person can, where a, a, a different stakeholder, the marketing person tr doesn't trust you. And that can happen, right? Just like, you know, enough mistakes can get made that there's a need to manage a relationship. So how do you do that? So it depends across the board, but I am a huge proponent of the casual, let's take 30 minutes and just hang out and get lunch. And that's not work related. That is something totally off the, you know, off the grid. You're not necessarily doing work, but I'll, you know, but just the casual, I want to, I want you to know how I think. I want you to know how I operate goes a long way when the pressure comes on and there's a need to understand a metric and talk about something. I like one, just informal meetings. And then I like a lot of just, hey, let's do some working sessions together. I want you to know that I, I care about this and I want to do my best to help you. So what does that bubble down to? I guess it's just meetings. And that's, <laughs> as as I, I don't encourage extra meetings, but at the same time, there, there is value to collaborative working sessions. That Maybe that's the better way to put it. Like not to use 
more buzzwords, but like it's going to be the case that a marketer or someone on the product team or someone on the engineering team will build trust if there is mutual time spent understanding concerns on working through problems together. And I'm a huge proponent of that. I mean, you know, the way I think about it based on what you said is within a discipline, right? So if you had two engineers who need to collaborate, we have a shared physical almost artifact the you know, the code, the commit, the PR. And so that's an unfair like advantage within a single discipline to collaborate where there's like, there's a piece of shared context that does not require a meeting Mm. because we're both iterating on the same physical, effectively physical thing that we both have the same understanding of because two senior engineers understand code. Like that's just, unless something's gone very wrong, like in your hiring process. But in, in the examples that you're talking about, right, it's two different disciplines. And so they, there's no shared substrate, right? Someone says, I want X. And like, that doesn't mean those, those words, that thing doesn't exist. And you could say, well, a spreadsheet is a shared thing. But the ultimate thing that is always shared between any two humans, even if they don't share any other thing, is like the whiteboard slash the talking. And so I think, yeah, there's more of an onus to, to resolve uh, impedance mismatch on how you think and how you work in that in, in this kind of cross-discipline environment that you wouldn't have as much of in a single discipline. I appreciate that, actually. You've got me thinking about it, too. The data teams tend to operate out, you know, they're in their own space. And I, I don't want, I'm not going to use the term silo because that would mean that the data team's not right. doing its job. <laughs> but uh, it's true. Like, there, there tends to be a separate repo with just SQL in it or some yeah. Python code that's around data transformations or yeah. something. And it's not necessarily the app or, you know, on the marketing space. It the, What's the common thing? It's the dashboard. It's the KPI and the conversations around those metrics. So, and when, Which is the outputs, not the inputs, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. That is what I was going to get to. So I like you've got those gears turning in my head. I, th- I feel like I'm going to go to sleep thinking about that now. Just not to be silly, but like in all honesty, what are the common artifacts that the data teams have with other disciplines? And it tends to, uh, you said it wonderfully. I'm going to walk away with that. This was a great conversation for that. <laughs> Flattered. <laughs> you must get that all the time. No, by no means. I, 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 I tend to be the, I think it's like, I have the advantage of like listening to a lot of these. And so, and observing and looking at it from like, you know, I'm on my little perch over here. I can just watch. I'm not under pressure to deliver your KPI. And so, and I mean, if you want my perspective, it's like we, I, my product, if your product is trying to make interviews better, like my product is effectively trying to make the, the interface layer between these two sets of humans better, right? The, the people who run the business or run the product and the people who generate the data. And so it's like, I, I need to think about this a lot, right? Because where is the limit of what my software can do versus what the people have to do? And then the, you know, I think there was an, a blog post years and years ago about like, I think it was something called like Slack is the, is an else statement, you know? So it's like, you use this to collaborate or this to collaborate or this to collaborate. Like basically if you can find a perfect functional collaboration tool, you will use it like CoderPad for an interview. Right. And then in the absence of a bespoke tool, to collaborate, you will just devolve into messaging. So Slack. And I think, yeah, data professionals, unfortunately, like their collaboration is with people who don't share the same tools. And so you, you yeah, I think you end up at the, the, the metaphorical whiteboard and a lot of talking and a lot of hopefully writing down. 
Do you have specs? Do you create, is there, when people request something, do you force it into a, a, a physical form? Like just to put it in perspective, like when I was at Microsoft years and years ago, you know, you, because it's a machine, right? It's like so many people. So like you, you create patterns and templates and processes. And so PMs would write these massive specs back in the day. And this is all kind of shifted now, but back in the day when software would ship once every three years, these specs were like full on documents that kind of thought through all the implications before the code was written. So it was like 50 pages, you know, it was like these massive things. And they had sections in them that were built in. Like you always had to think about like, well, what, how's this going to affect internationalization? How is this going to affect performance? How's this going to affect security? Just as like, it's like a checklist, right? To make sure the, 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 the kind of average PM made sure to think about these things. Is there something similar? Like, is there like an intake kind of document that data teams should provide to their stakeholders of like, you want X, like you must answer these 12 questions first. Oh, yikes. I'm not that harsh. I say that with the fortune of the fact that like we're not so large a company, that level of process needs to be put in place. I spoke earlier to alignment. I think part of the, the better part of my job is not when I'm heads down trying to answer questions. It's when I'm talking to people and understanding what their concerns are. Like everyone's got a metric that they're accountable for at this company. And that's not unique to us. Sure. My aim is to understand those goals and to care about that as much as the stakeholder does. So when forms come, and there there is one, but it's got all of like three questions, like what do you need? When do you need to buy? And give me some contact. Phil, <laughs> um, draw that, the rest of the owl here, please. Yeah, the reason... Yeah, I asked for that, but the truth is when these questions come, they're not really surprises today because I have the good fortune of working at on a team where I basically can say I know everybody and I'm talking to everybody. Right. When we grow and when we grow to the size where I need that kind of process, the, my answer may change. But yeah, the, yeah and, but I think right now I'm lucky enough that I don't have to pull that Microsoft card yet. I mean, again, it's an issue of, it's not just size of company, it's kind of scale of impact, right? So it's like mm. any code change at a large enough company, and by large, I don't mean number of employees, I mean number of users, means that every second order effect becomes a big deal. And so editing the color of the shopping cart, eventually you're gonna be like, well, let's just create the, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought, it's it's the sad reality of companies as they grow, right, is, is you have to, you start to build rules and systems to, to allow for, I hate to say this, like the average person to be able to perform well rather than for the superstar to perform well. And I think the unique joy of a small organization of a startup, you know, is like a high performance small team is that you don't have to optimize for that. Just, just, just optimize for high performance, you know, and don't try to protect yourself from the kind of middle. And I think the, just to go on that a little further, the other thing that really gets me excited about the smaller companies, especially mm. is it's okay to make a mistake. Whereas even if you know changing the button color hurt something, there's always a, there's always a way to reverse it. Yeah. The important part is learning. And if you ask me, like that's the coolest part about the job, right? Like I think that's what I tend to favor uh, smaller companies because not so much about you know I guess just to keep on my point, I love the fact that mistakes can be okay because it fosters a culture among folks you know on in the data discipline to feel like mistakes are a good thing. And not to say I promote them, but like I, I believe that leads to great learning and can lead to a cooler experiment that happens next or you know, better conversation across all levels of an org. 
So you're right. Uh, you know, the larger companies, and I've seen it where the, there's meetings about, you know, who, what stakeholders to bring in that might be impacted by the button change. And there's value to that, especially when you, you mean, the, the org is large enough and there's enough users that would be impacted. I get that. It's just less fun, yeah. at least in my mind. I like could not agree with you more. Like freedom to make mistakes, freedom to experiment is if you lose that, it's somewhat, it's a little bit in a minor way, soul crushing. And actually you've made me think of this real great kind of like meta final question here, which is given that you're trying to measure, we talked earlier about like some really grandiose KPIs that hopefully you can build at CoderPad someday, which is like, is an interview question, you know, good, (laughs) like, like really dig into that. I think there's a real super KPI that all companies in the world would love that I think is non-existent, nebulous, which is what is our rate of learning? Because you're right. I, If you learn faster, it, that means you're going to achieve more things. Like it's basically like, it's almost like evolution 101, right? And so if you boil down almost all companies, who doesn't want to make sure they're moving and learning? In fact, it's learning is better than moving. It's like one implies the other theoretically, right? And so, I mean, unless you're purely research, but how would we measure this? How could we, how could you build a KPI that is the rate of learning of this organization? I would love to have that answer. I mean, I, the, the, where my mind goes is, are you conducting experiments and making change? And that would be very heavily driven by a collaborative effort with the product managers or product owners. And I think that the fact that it's necessarily a collaborative effort makes it something that could describe what's going on at a macro level within the company. So rate of learning. Gosh, I love that. Why? It Because it, it's not exclusive to one discipline. Exactly. One yeah. It, and yeah. Well, I mean, as a programmer, right? It's almost like it's the ability to introspect. It's like it's an organizational question. You say, are we running experiments? I think that's a good. I agree with you. I think that's a good. That's the slant, right? It would be like number of experiments run is a great first pass of like, OK, that's how I would probably build this KPI. But like is performance reviews is like org structure. How many experiments should we run on that? Is that like a kind of learning? And like, how do you, cause it's organization have to learn in, like you said, in all it's a cross disciplinary concept, right? So it's hard. This is a, I don't even know if you can boil it down to one number, but definitely we seem to know as humans, this organization seems to learn a lot, move fast, become better. And this one does not, which means it's somewhat quantifiable or it's, What's the, is there a word for this where it's like humans are able to go like, I can see it when I see it, but I can't measure it. Like that, that has plagued legal professionals for, for years. Like I know what it is when I see it. Right. Right. There's a famous ruling for this, right? Yeah. 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 This. Yeah. So I feel like a high learning environment, people kind of seem to know they're like, yeah, it's like you feel it individually. You feel it as an organization. It tends to be related to like a high rate of change, but hopefully not change that is just perturbation, right? It's changed towards. Right, right. It, it's right. got to, it's got to just, it's got to lead to growth in yeah. some way. And I mean, investors struggle with this too. Like, is, is this moving me in a direction that will give me some kind of return or, you know, it, 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 the folks that are steering the company, right. From execs to PMs and managers, they're asking the same question of their departments. You know, are we making moves that are progressing yeah. my KPI? So I think you'd be, I think you're right. It would be an amalgamation of multiple numbers like that describe different motions within a, within an org. But 
if we could boil it down to one number, rate of learning, rate of, I, I would probably say that correlates, if not is the same thing with rate of growth. And if you're moving- Sure, the right- I, I think, yeah, you, of course. I think rate of growth is ultimately the, the, it's probably the closest output variable to the rate of learning as an input, like if you want. But the way I think about it is, let's say you make a bet like, oh, let's try a billboard, you know, let's try a Super Bowl ad, right? Like a lot of times you'll see executives be like, let's do that. I'm willing to put the money in. I'm willing to take the bet. Let's, or like you use the word gamble, right? Like, and what we all want on the other side is, okay, a home run would be great. But if not, I would love to have learned what works and what does not so that we are now smarter so that the next time around other people are like, yeah, we'll do a Super Bowl ad, but we'll know what works and doesn't work. And that's valuable, right? Like you're trying to capture that and we know how to pose experiments. We know how to, we kind of know how to test things, but we don't quantify the amount that we have learned. Like, like mm. that's just, you know what people call this? It's like process knowledge. It's, you know, when you try to recreate the semiconductor factories now, like that we've thrown away in the U S like decades ago, like it's not just the machines that you can go buy the machines. It's that someone who's been building semiconductors in a factory in, you know, wherever at Intel or in China for like 10, 20 years, there's like, there's process. Now there's process that's like in the human's brain and nowhere else. And it might be written down, right? This is one of those things you can pull up the Apollo thing and you're like, you're going to, they wrote it all down, but like you would not be able to operate the machine. Like it's like the combo of what's written down and what's in the like osmosis of people who have been doing it. And it's like, you were trying to quantify that. It's like how much, institutional knowledge are we generating in this organization that is unique and and differentiated and that helps us obviously towards our growth otherwise it's just knowledge right well i think that's what goes through my mind it's fine you're learning but is is it learning that's helping I, and so i can't help but also relate it to to some cost which is why i think i'm in my mind i went towards well learning that is helping move a business in a direction that's fundamentally a good direction and that doesn't have to be quantified by say dollars or users or whatever but in some direction that helps move the business towards whatever its growth path is, there's got to be some cost factor that's accounted for. Yeah. Is the learning that we're, are the experiments or whatever it is that we're trying, teaching us stuff that moves us forward? And if the answer is we're learning lots, but we're not going forward, then is that really learning? <laughs> like you, like, No, you're right. Of course. I, you're, you're completely correct. And like now you, you are also qualified to be a, a venture capitalist. Uh, dude. I think it's the short term, long term, right? It's like, you're willing to stagnate for, let's say, a month or three months if it meant you learn something that would now help you grow faster eventually. But yes, if there's no growth ever coming, then you're right. Then you're just learning things and you're not. It's it's an academic exercise. It's not useful. That's a great um, circle back to where we were prior. Like, yeah. I could, I, there's a place for rigor and there's a place for just trying stuff. And one of those gets you towards positive process knowledge. Yeah, I know you're totally right. And I think like, some experiments will cause you to, 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 to fail and, or die. And like, and that's also bad, right? So it's like, you want to be right at that edge of like the boat keeps moving closer and closer to the destination and faster. And like, we can zigzag a little bit along the way. Right. Well, listen, David, this was, this went to a lot of different interesting places. So thank you for a really edifying conversation. That was a load of fun. Yeah. Let's do it again. Definitely. 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 All right. Well, listen, thanks for joining. And uh, yeah, we'll do this again for sure. Fabulous. Well, folks, until next time, this is The Sequel Show. Special thanks to Joe Stevens for our theme song. And thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. 
If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to get notified for future episodes.